Before I start this sermon, I just always love when I know that the song we're singing has a descant. So, thank you, Natasha. I love hearing that. So, well, this is one of those weeks as we come to the fifth Sunday in Lent already. Um, Jessica earlier today posted a note on social media that made me laugh. She said, you know, Lent is fifth Sunday of Lent. Lent's almost over. This is one of the fastest Lents ever, no pun intended. And I We've been talking about that in our house, that like, it's hard to believe how quickly this Lent at least feels like it has gone this year, and so already we, we are beginning to shift our focus and need to begin to shift our focus on Holy Week, which is upon us in, in just a week from today as we uh, gather together on the patio to begin our service next week for Palm Sunday, and then uh, remember and recount those final days of the life of Jesus, and And uh, today's gospel reading turns us in this direction. Uh, It it makes us look in that direction. Not not only that, but I mean, Sarah choosing the song we just sang also points us in that direction. And this is the way we've been pointed since the beginning of Lent towards the cross. But in particular now, we are being pointed there. And it's good that the gospel reading is doing this for us. And so, so much of me this week thought, yes, I'm going to preach this passage from Jeremiah. I love this new covenant passage. I love how you know, he tells us that God's going to no longer chisel his commands in stone, but he's going to write them on our, our hearts. And maybe our hearts are a bit stony, but that's where it's going to be written, on the, on the flesh of our hearts. And wow, that is such a great thing to preach. And of course, that's recapitulated at the Last Supper in Jesus' giving of the new commandment. And I thought, man, I should really preach that. And then I read the epistle reading today from Hebrews, and I thought, no. This is what I should preach. Man, what a great opportunity. I can talk about that the, that the Son of God is eternally begotten of the Father, right? And then I can talk about Melchizedek. You know, you don't get a lot of opportunities to talk about how Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I thought, this is what I'm going to preach on. And then I read the gospel and I said, no, this is what I'm going to preach on, right? Or at least that first part of the gospel reading um, about now has the time come, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And, and mostly that's what I settled on, was to focus on that passage tonight, because as I, as I thought about what we needed to be doing as individuals and as a parish, and, and, and even before I saw Jessica's uh, post, I too felt, again, that Lent had just rushed by, and I thought maybe what we need is to be pointed towards the cross in particular tonight. And the gospel does that really well. And so we'll have to reserve Jesus' eternal Melchizedekian priesthood for another time and his eternal begottenness and the new covenant and those things. Not that it's not worth preaching those, but, you know, we're Anglicans, so we're only going to do this for so long here tonight. And so um, you'll only tolerate me for so long. And so as we come to the gospel tonight, we have this account that John puts in there of these Greeks that come to, that come to Philip and probably came to Philip because he was from that area um, they probably knew that, felt that he was approachable. And, and so John just situates this kind of encounter um, that these Greeks come, and maybe Philip's not real sure what to do. So they come and say, we want to see Jesus. And I don't know if Philip's just a little conflicted because they're Greeks, right? They're not Jewish people. He's not sure what to do. So Philip goes and says to Andrew, what do you think we should do? And apparently Andrew's the kind of disciple that says, well, let's just go ask Jesus what we should do. 
and got an answer that I'm sure totally surprised them because it wasn't a like, sure, I'll meet them. We can go for whatever the equivalent of first century coffee is. And so instead, they go, and I presume ask the question, so there's some Greeks that want to see you, right? Or we have some Greeks here that want to see you. Can you, know, can you see them? Can, can they meet you? And Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I could imagine thinking like, so I'm hearing you say you're busy, right? Like the hour has come, so you're just busy right now? Is that what it is, Jesus? Is it not the right time? You want to go off and pray by yourself again? Is that what I'm hearing? Or something like that, right? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And for John, this is the first of three uses of this text. This is language that John records for us three times from the mouth of Jesus. This is the first time. The next time will be in the next chapter, John 13, 31. And that's after Judas has just gone out to bring back those who will arrest Jesus. So Judas leaves, goes out after the Last Supper, or maybe during the Last Supper, right right before Jesus gives his new covenant, which again harkens back to our reading, even from um, Jeremiah tonight. Right? And so Jesus says, again, there, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And there, of course, it comes across almost like, go ahead, Judas, go betray me. My hour has come. The last time in the gospel that this phrase is used is in chapter 17, verse 1. And that's the beginning of Jesus's high priestly prayer, right? Where he prays that his followers, followers will be one as God the Father and God the Son are one. And that is amazing just from a textual standpoint tonight because that text emphasizes the unity of the Father and the Son in the same way that the Hebrews reading talks about his eternal begottenness. So each time it's, it's pointing to text from tonight, but, but again, in that, in that context, you know, he's getting ready to pray for this unity, but at the same time, he's close to his death. That's why he's praying for that unity in John 17. So, so this phrase, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, points us towards the cross because it's Jesus pointing himself towards his own death. Right? So the context is, is different each time, but it's Jesus saying, my hour has come. Right? So... Uh, you must die in order to live. I must die in order to live. My time has come, Judas. Go out. Betray me. My hour has come. Therefore, Lord, give them the kind of unity, God, that you and I, Father, that we have with one another. So that phrase points us, points Jesus and points us to the cross. But then immediately, again, we, we lose all reference to these Greeks that have come to meet Jesus. We don't get an encounter with these Greeks. We don't, we don't see Jesus interacting with these people who wanted to come see him. Instead, he situates his death is at hand, and then he says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, he might be talking to those Greeks at that moment. He might be talking, those Greeks are there now with his followers. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And I want to stop there, though. It's not the end of our gospel reading tonight. So maybe the Greeks have been introduced to Jesus, 
But Jesus decides to use this moment to point his disciples and himself towards his death, to say, my hour has come. And then he immediately gives them what I would think would be a very hard teaching about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. In other words, not only do I have to go now and die for the sake of the world, but if you're going to be a real follower of me, you have to die as well. Right, this, this all starts with some people saying, we want to meet Jesus. <laughs> right, that's, we want to meet Jesus, we've heard about him. Right, three years he's been active, now it's time for me to go die. Right, and so Jesus says, like, look, I'm going to go die, but you also must die. Because in dying, Jesus says, I will be glorified. But what does that mean? How is death a glorification? Right? We think of death as the end of things, right? It's, it's, now, some people, saints in the Christian context, but also celebrities, whatever that means, sometimes when people die, they get even more famous. Right? Like, no one probably went to Graceland like people go to Graceland now, assuming people still go to Graceland. I don't know. Maybe that's a bad example. So whatever the equivalent of Graceland is these days, right? But, but how is death a glorification? You know, why would Jesus say, you know, Father, glorify me by way of my death? And I would think if I was one of Jesus' followers, I would think that's not a glorification. That would be the end of things. I've seen you do some really cool things, Jesus. We could kick this up a notch. We could take this to the next level. Right? You could really show these Romans who's boss. You could, you could deliver the people of Israel politically through your power. Like That would be really cool. That would be glorifying. People would know who you are then. But instead, Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to die. That's how I'm going to be glorified. And guess what? If you also want to be glorified, you too need to die. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, wrote this. It is from the cross that the light of God's love shines forth upon the world in its fullest splendor. Right? It is from the cross that the light of God's love shines forth upon the world in its fullest splendor. How is death glorifying? Because when Jesus is lifted up on that cross, as we sang, his light will shine forth more abundantly upon the world. It's a glorification in the sense that he will be lifted up and people will see that light and his light will shine forth upon the world. That's a way to be glorified. Right? And literally the posture of being lifted up, we think of that as elevated so that people can see you, right? Man, this would be a great moment to be standing in one of those medieval pulpits in a cathedral looking down at you, right? In a sense, like, here I am, lifted up. Why? So that the word of God preached from this pulpit is, is able to go out and be proclaimed, right? So there is something to that being lifted up that Jesus' light will shine, and therefore he'll be glorified. So that's the first way that we could think of how his death is a glorification. But verse 24 reminds us that from the death of a seed comes new life. And we know this. I mean, this is, this is common knowledge. We don't need to be a farming community to know that if you put a seed in the ground, the only way you get something from it is that seed dies. Right? I mean, it dies as a seed in order to bring out that new life, right? That seed will crack open and that life within it will come forth. But if you bury a seed and nothing comes up, which is kind of like, what Christine and I do a lot of times historically, right? We bury seeds and nothing comes up. You know, 
we can't see into the ground, but we're sitting there going, what's going on down there? Right? Now, it could be a bum seed, but it, it's not living into this verse 24 principle. It's not dying in order to give new life. It's just sitting in the ground. Right? Remaining alone. Doing nothing. Until we come around the next year and repeat that process to see the same result. We beat it this year, though. We put in succulents. So take that. We're not, we're not messing around anymore. We're not going to wait for those seeds to come up. We're going to get plants you can hardly kill. Temple says, death is the condition of fuller life. And I like that as well, because in order to be glorified, right, in order to get the glorious tree, right, in order to, to get that glorious plant or whatever it is that you want to see come to fruition, you plant that seed in the ground and it dies, and from that comes something beautiful. I mean, sure, we go over to the Home Depot, buy a tree that's already starting to grow, right? So we don't wait that process out oftentimes, you know, but we planted a number of years ago at this house a, a fig tree, some sort of a fig tree. And I was pretty sure it said it would never grow higher than six feet, but it lied if that's what it said. Maybe it said 16 and I misread it because now we're getting concerned about the roots, right? But this tree has become ginormous. What we brought home in this pot and put in the ground and thought, hopefully it will grow, it has become huge. It, it's over against our neighbor's house because if you've been to our place, you know our neighbor's house on the one side has no windows, just like our side has no windows on, on it. It's zero property line, so we planted it next to the neighbor's house, and that's why we're concerned about the roots because it's someone else's house that they're going to mess up. And, but this tree has grown higher than their garage. It's up above the roof line of their garage now. Chris is like, should we trim it back? I'm like, I don't, know what that, I don't know what to do. I need to Google it or something. Yeah, we probably should, but I'm afraid if I trim it, it's going to say, great, you've made me healthier. I'm going to grow bigger now, <laughs> right? But again, at some point, a seed died, and that tree started taking root, and I bought it, and I brought it home, and I put it in the ground, and we watered it, and we've watched it grow and grow, and we love it so much that we ripped out another shrub near it to plant another one next to it. So now we have big fig tree and still getting their fig tree, right? But the other day I noticed like, wow, I can see that fig tree growing. I can see it getting bigger and stronger and healthier. It's going to grow as big as that other one, I think, if the other one will ever stop. It'll catch up, right? So Jesus reminds us of this very common thing. Like, look, when a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it has to die. And if it dies, then it bears much fruit. If it doesn't die... It's doing no one any good. And so discipleship is about dying. Jesus says, look, my hour has come, but guess what? In my death, I'm going to be glorified. But if you die, you also will be serving the purpose of glorification. Now, ideally, we're pointing to Jesus in our own death. But nonetheless, this is how death is a glorification, because by it, new life comes and points to Jesus. And verse 25 just makes this explicit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Death to self, death to this world, leads to eternal life. And that's always strong language in the Bible, right? Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We have to hate life in this world. That doesn't mean we hate the fact that we're alive. It means that we have to hate the fact that we live in this fallen world. 
That we should long for heaven knowing that's our ultimate home and moan the fact that we have to be here on earth. But what we should be doing while we're here is dying to self. That is what we can be doing, not just disparaging the world, not just standing around complaining about it, right? But instead, dying to ourselves so that we can have eternal life. And when we have that life through death, then we point to the truthfulness of Jesus's death and his glorification. Another commentator I read this week said, Jesus's Movement from death to resurrected life provides the basic pattern for the Christian life. Again, Jesus' movement from death to resurrected life provides the basic pattern for the Christian life. Think about that. The Christian life isn't I'm born and now I'm moving towards death. That's the Christian life. No, if we want to follow Jesus' example, it's death to the world until your physical death. That's the Christian life. That's the life of discipleship. If we have not died to self, we're not on that journey yet. Jesus gives his life for others on the cross and his disciples. We should replicate this pattern of loving self-sacrifice. So if I have not died to the world, if I've not died to myself, I haven't even begun the process of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It reorients what we're all about. It reorients the way that we as Christians think about our baptism, how we were buried in the image of Christ and raised in newness of life. And from that, that death at baptism and from the death of ourself over and over again, moving forward to the resurrected life of, of um, glory with Jesus. That is what glorification is. The way of the cross, with the self-sacrificial love and the dying to self-centeredness it entails, is the only way for discipleship. If we want to be Jesus' disciples, then we need to have self-sacrificial love and we need to die to ourselves, particularly our self-centeredness. Temple wrote his commentary, William Temple I mentioned, he wrote this commentary in the early 20th century. But it sounds like it could have been written today. And another line that I really liked is he said, self-love is self-destruction. It's good to know that 90 years ago, people were still in love with themselves, right? I mean, because that's such a modern thing, it feels like. Right? So much so that you can create false selves on social media. I heard a great comment yesterday. I was down at the Religious Ed Congress uh, at the Anaheim Convention Center. It's a huge Roman Catholic-run event, and I was down there because uh, my alma mater, St. John's, was there, and every year they're like, hey, why don't you come and hang out at the booth and tell potential students what it's like to be a student at St. John's, and it gets me in the door for free so I can then pilfer like liturgical shops and booksellers and all that kind of stuff, right? So it's not completely self-sacrificial in the way that I'm trying to preach tonight, but... The next to me, the bookstall next to me is, it turns out, here's St. John's, and right next to us is Baker Books, who published my story of monasticism book, and it's sitting there. And so I'm next to a friend of mine, Steve, the whole day, and I hear Steve say to this guy, yeah, when you fill out that form, if you're going to leave your credit card, I really need you to write your birthday down. And the guy goes, my real one or my social media one? Now, he was, well, no, oh, I, well, I'm saying this because I'm one of the oldest people in this room. 
Given his age, I think that was a joke. If he would have been 25, I would have wondered if it wasn't true. But he made a point, and the point is simply this. Do you really want to know how old I am or the way that I project myself to others? The false self that I can create so easily these days. Right? But Temple says self-love is self-destruction. Self-centeredness is sin. And then I love this line. He says self-love is hell. Let's assume he's right. Let's assume that William Temple is right. Self-love is hell. Then why wouldn't we want to die to ourselves? If that's hell and dying to self is heaven, then sign me up. But you know what? We all struggle with this. I'm self-important, at least in my own mind. And sometimes that's all it needs to be is in my own mind. I don't need anyone else to affirm it. As long as I think it, then I will keep resisting death to self. I keep wanting to do, be Greg. I want to be Greg Peters. You know what was humbling yesterday to you? I'll tell you this, honest confession. He didn't sell any copies of my book yesterday. Right? So I'm sitting there. I see people pick it up. I go, oh, it's going to sell. Then I'm like, nope, same number of copies over there. Right? Then I'm like, okay, oh, another person picked it up. It's going to sell. I mean, this is a, religious, a Roman Catholic religious ed conference, right? If a book on monasticism is not going to sell there, why did I write it? I don't know. But anyway, it didn't sell. Neither, neither of the copies he had there sold. And so we had him over for dinner. And I said, I joked with him on the way back. And Steve is such a nice guy, he said, oh, Greg, don't worry about it. He goes, Roman Catholics don't know what they should be reading. <laughs> now, he's a Roman Catholic, so I said, okay, <laughs> you know. But talk about a little humility there in that moment, right, to realize, like, wow. Like, I literally looked over, and a Carmelite nun had my book in her hand, and then she put it down. Now, she takes vows of poverty, I told myself. This makes sense. I should have bought it for her, right? <laughs> But as long as I'm thinking in any way highly of myself, then I don't want to die to myself. And if I don't die to myself, then not only am I not walking the way of Jesus, but I'm not truly a disciple, and I certainly cannot reach a stage of glorification, both in the sense that I will be glorified with Jesus and that in my death to self, Jesus will be glorified in it. So as we have pointed ourselves to the cross, as the text has pointed us toward the cross this evening, let us use these next couple of weeks that are left to us in Lent to ponder the way in which we as individuals resist the scripture's command to die to self, to die so that something better can come out of it. Let's think about the ways, as the gospel says, that we remain alone but not dead so that nothing comes about from it. And let us focus on the ways that we resist the, even this image, even this thought of dying to self. Let us look in the mirror and dig deep into ourselves to see where we're resistant as people to this death to self. Think about why we think we're self-important, why we think people need us, why we think people need to know who we are, how good it is that people know us and that we're in their life, etc., etc., etc. And in doing that exercise, we will see also that Jesus made us as special people, that he made us as unique individuals, that we do matter in the lives of people, in our family, and in our friends. This is not about we're superfluous and we should just walk away from it all. 
not that kind of false self, but instead to think about the way in which God wants us to die to ourselves so that our true self can come forth. And in imitation of Jesus Christ, we too can be lifted up as his disciples and glorify him and be glorified ourselves. So keep your eyes on the cross if you haven't been doing that well. For the next two weeks, look to the cross. See the image of Jesus there. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. An hour, hour has come to die to self so that we too can glorify him and ultimately be glorified in his death. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.